you carry a piece of the most wonderful person on this planet in your face. Oh, doctor, I never thought about it like that. That is a new, that is a new, new thought. And I said, well, then why not reflect on if we basically improve the shape of your nose, but we respect the love of your grandmother and, and the, and the specific shape you have. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Rhinoplasty Podcast with me, Dr. Cameron McIntosh. It's the month of April and we're continuing about endonasal rhinoplasty. It's a huge shout out to Marina Medical for enabling the April endonasal rhinoplasty podcast. Thank you for supporting us. Now on the show today, I've got a very interesting man all the way from Saint the, the canton of St. Gallen in Switzerland. One of the most professional people I've come across at uh, all the conferences and stuff, how he presents himself, how passionate he is about um, rhinoplasty in general, but especially endonasal and, and passionate about teaching. Um, so it's with great pleasure that I welcome Abel Jan Tasman to the show. Abel Jan, thank you for being with us today. Very welcome. So Very for, welcome. for our listeners, uh, I mean, around the world, tell us a little bit more about Switzerland and what you do there and how you ended up becoming a rhinoplasty surgeon. Well, uh, if you want to start with Switzerland, beautiful country, uh, full of snow at the moment, perfect slopes, uh, nice sunny weekends. Uh, just spent two days uh, cross-country skiing and, uh, and downhill skiing. Um, it's a nice place to live. Many people are relatively satisfied, especially the doctors, complain less than in other countries. I don't fully understand why that is so, but uh, that's one of the reasons why I came to this uh, beautiful country. Um, having specialized in facial plastic surgery early on in my ENT career. Basically, as a, as a last year resident, uh, I was allowed to do uh, procedures that um, really, really caught me and, and motivated me to, uh, to continue this. And uh, I started out indeed as an endonasal rhinoplasty surgeon, then tried the open approach, but uh, quickly came back to the endonasal for the basically the elegance and the technical challenge, I would say. Mm. And at the moment, are you in a full-time academic post or do you also do private medicine? No, I'm, uh, I have a very, uh, very uh, appealing appointment at one of the largest non, so far non-university hospitals that's becoming academic now in the eastern part of Switzerland, not too far from Lake Constance and the uh, Austrian border. Uh, pleasant working, but uh, I'm expected to work full-time um, in the hospital, which I'm very glad to do. So I don't have a private practice, or you could say I have a private practice within the hospital. Okay. So I have my private patients and my, my own secretary. Oh, that's great. And now if you, so you, you like your cross-country skiing in, in winter. What do you get up to in summer when you're not working? Well, um, I, I like to hunt. I like to hike uh, mountain tours and uh, we have an old wooden sailing boat on the lake, so I'm a very outdoorsy person. Uh, like the water, like the mountains. That's awesome. Okay, so my first question to you, I want to get around that semantics of this whole thing about endonasal rhinoplasty and open approach and structural and preservation rhinoplasty because there's a lot of hot air out there. There's a lot of self-promotion, I think. Um, say, say some of your thoughts around that, please. Well, I agree. I think there's a lot, uh, a lot of the, the terminology is ambiguous and, and is, uh, is not very clear. Let's, uh, for instance, start with the term preservation. 
preserving means respecting, and that's what I do. I don't do preservation as it is taught and seen in many courses. Um, I have a, quite a large series of patients where I did a classic let or push down technique that was described in the 1950s in the U.S. by Kotler, as far as I know, and then by Bert Herzing in, in Europe in, 19, in the 70s, it was 75. Um, it was something that was belittled when I was a resident uh, and, and, uh, and a fellow, because that was the time when humps were resected, uh, there was aggressive cartilage modification of the aedal cartilage, so it was basically ablative, and the whole concept of leaving the dorsum alone was uh, was very last year, it was very outdated and, and out of fashion. And I came to understand that uh, that there is a lot to the concept. Now, I wouldn't call it preservation per se, because you don't preserve everything. Uh, to me, preservation is something that goes way beyond um, the techniques that are, are shown today. Mm-hmm. It has more to do with respecting tissues that uh, that deserve being respected and deserve being left alone. I've done a lot of uh, surgery with uh, with uh, my neurosurgical colleague doing pituitary surgery and resecting skull-based tumors. And one thing he said early on in neurosurgery and open brain surgery, there is no sightseeing. Don't go places in the brain where you don't need to go. You don't want to touch structures where you don't that, that don't don't need to be touched that should not be touched. And I sort of copied that from a rhinoplasty approach too, um, basically leaving the tissues alone if I can achieve the goal that I've agreed upon with my patient without uh, bluntly saying pulling everything apart, mm-hmm. not opening up the nasal tip if I don't have to. Mm-hmm. And um, in almost all the cases I, I operate on, I, I very well get away with that. So I'm not cutting corners, I'm just trying to respect tissues mm-hmm. and not do more, not dissect more than, uh, than I need to. So it's basically hiding the access and restricting the dissection of the tissues to the minimum I can can afford, or the minimum that gets me to where I want to be with a patient. Mm. So, you, you know, for me, I find it frustrating that people want to put people in different camps and say, I'm an endonasal surgeon, I'm an open approach surgeon. I think, you know, we should have mutual respect for each other. And at the end of the day, what's going to be best for that specific patient? You know, I think possibly the reason why people are, scared if you want to say it about endonasal work is the 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 preconceived ideas i can't actually see what i'm doing but i mean yourself and holger and these guys have shown us that you can get astounding results through endonasal approaches i agree i think the point is that you have to uh imagine what you do will look like um Number one, I'm speaking about the tip. On the other hand, if you open the nose and you modify your structures, you modify the shape, you reposition your cartilage, you add or you subtract, um, it's a lot more difficult to see on the table what this will do to the nose. If I do a, let's say, if I approach both domes with a double dome suture, um, I see what I'm doing um, of course, there is swelling. Of course, there is there is a little seroma and hematoma in the nose when you do that, but still, uh, you can anticipate that. And I think that is um, something that scares a lot of surgeons because they think what you're doing is below the water surface. Mm. It's under the surface. You just basically feel it, but you can't see it. Mm. Um, and that is intimidating. Now, the other thing that I've seen is that those who are trained in, in open surgery, so the external approach, 
find it very difficult to find their way back mm -hmm. because they think that they have to see what they're doing in order to be secure. Now, I can tell you, and you probably have seen the same, I've seen a lot of collateral damage in noses that were opened um, where the surgeon failed to reassemble the nasal tip as it was before patients, young women who had a perfectly mm -hmm. okay nasal tip uh, that just did not look right after surgery. So basically a collateral damage of the approach. Now, I, I have my own collateral damages with the techniques I use, but I think it's particularly uh, cumbersome and, and, and sorry if you basically damage intact structures that leave a visible stigma of surgery uh, and that is avoidable. Yeah. So a question in terms of the listeners around the world who who kind of want to pursue this and really spend a bit more time looking at how can they get those skills under their belt? What are some of the resources you would advise people to turn to? Well, I think the, the first and most important thing is to, to reflect uh, on what you do, uh, to build upon endonasal techniques you know. For instance, septoplasty is typically an endonasal approach. Very few surgeons open the nose just to the septum. You can, but you don't need to. Um, and, and move from there. Number two, probably go see surgeons who do that. Um, and, and just understand that it's, it is doable. You, you can do it. It's maybe technically challenging. And then find out for yourself, is this something I want to get into? Um, do I think my hands can do that? My brain can do that? My brain hand axis is, is able to manage that? And if so, um, start probably with less challenging mm -hmm. uh, cases and gain confidence and then move from there. Um, I'm, I'm aware that there is not a lot of teaching institutions that still offer that, yeah. um, but there are. There are, and, and, and they're good. And uh, the uh, nasal webinars um, Holger and I have been organizing for a while now um, just show that there's an interest due to the, the substantial number of participants. Yeah. I mean, it's, I thought we'd do this a couple of times and then interest may fade. That's not the case. So uh, we're very encouraged to see that um, a lot of, a lot of uh, colleagues still log on and log in and, uh, and are part of us and, and discuss it with us. No, it's been, it's been a fantastic series. So for those of you who haven't logged in, uh, maybe you can tell, tell the listeners wh where they will be able to find that on which website. Uh, it's on uh, it's on facial plastic surgery EU. Um, it's uh, if if you Google if you Google facial plastic surgery EU uh, or Finesse, uh, Holger has hosted it on his website, so uh, that's relatively easy to find. And uh, we'd be happy to take anyone on our mailing list. Uh, and uh, everyone's uh, once welcome. Well, that's awesome. Thank you. Um, slightly changing the topic now. I know you've been very involved over the years with. Uh, facial plastic surgery education, how do you manage to weigh up between operating and also your time you spend on education and publishing papers and writing chapters and books, etc.? Well, it, it comes, it almost comes naturally if you, if you document what you're doing. Uh, I've always been fond of photography. I'm not, I'm not a video filmer much uh, compared to photography. And uh, I, I have the resources within our OR to have someone stand there and, and take good pictures. Now, that is extremely valuable to reflect. I have my patients come back, I look at the outcome, and if I have interoperative pictures, that is just 
fantastic way to uh, to learn, basically to learn and see what am I doing, where are my concepts right, do I have to change this, have I not done enough, have I been too aggressive, or did I just have I just made mistakes? And I, may, I make my fair share of mistakes myself, and I'm always very happy to see why, what went wrong. Yeah. Um, luckily enough, over the years, the mistakes you make become less important. They're not, I see them, patients very often don't even notice that. Um, but I think that's a very important, very important point. The other, the other uh, point you allude to is the question of how can we teach and how can we um, basically bring young surgeons to the point of where they feel confident. That's a, that's a difficult one. I've been involved in uh, teaching in the European Academy for many years. We set up or improved the fellowship program that, uh, that had been around. Um, we just launched a fellowship program at the Rhinoplasty Society Europe that uh, is now on for about, I think, a month or two. Uh, two handful of, of applications have come in. Uh, so there is a big interest, but in the end, what counts is number one, passion, number two, good hands, number three, um, the, the interest, the commitment, and go see people, and number four, maybe most important, having a place, a workplace where you can do and, and evolve in your surgery where you can do the cases. Um, I see a lot of colleagues who come to see me and say, well, you know, I, I just don't, I don't have the opportunity to, uh, to do a large number of cases, and I think that is key. Everybody will make some minor mistakes, I think, hopefully not major mistakes, and, and uh, over time and with increasing numbers of, of, uh, of patients, that becomes less of an issue. Mm. But it's still a point, and um, well, basically, I talked to uh, Heinz, I, I asked Heinz Stamberger, Professor Stamberger mm. from Graz, who uh, is deceased now, uh, how he approaches the issue of teaching in sinus surgery, and he said to me, that um, he had a large number of uh, fellows who went through his program, and he said they were all very decent uh, sinus surgeons, um, but there's only a handful that I would have liked to do surgery on me. And I said, so would the others have been unsafe? He said, no, absolutely not. They were good surgeons, but in some I saw just a particular talent, mm. a specific mm -hmm. talent that made me very confident and say, I, I like the way those hands move. Now, I think that is something you have to... Uh, consider for rhinoplasty mm. too. So it's not just the exposure, not just the places you've gone to to see surgery. I think it's also um, the opportunity to do the surgery, be passionate about mm. it, and probably probably have a little talent. Sure, that's a lot of things to think about. There. Tell me, what, when have been the really hard times for you in your career? What What are the times where you've kind of doubted yourself, or has been the low points? Before we speak about the high points. Um, low points were probably when I thought I understood rhinoplasty and I saw the um, the not so good outcomes as a after a year two or three doing rhinoplasty. When I thought, you know, I, I, now I understood it. I had read all the important textbooks. Uh, I had my own uh, operating uh, table. I could. Uh, I was basically free to do as I liked and. Uh, I fell into the trap of, of basically doing a cookie-cutter uh, approach to most nasal problems, which included uh, cephalic trimming, which included uh, sutures, etc., and realized that a lot of times I over-rotated tips and basically I overdid surgery. 
Um, now the sad thing with that is that you see that you see those patients come back after two or three months, they look terrific and they're very happy, and you see them come back after a year or two or three, and you realize mm. that there is uh, that there is something off in the concept you had. So those were uh, drawbacks basically early on in in, in doing rhinoplasty, and that has made me more cautious and and not more aggressive in the sense of doing more, adding more, or deleting more, but um, being being more prudent in my approach to uh, the problem, mm. number one, and more prudent in the way I handle tissues and, mm. and, and change what I'm at. To the point of, of not offering a patient a textbook note, as you can find mm. it, or a glossy magazine nose, some patients do that, they come and show me, I would like my nose like this. And I just, I, I 180, I flip that around and say, let's start with your nose and um, what bothers you? And the next question is, is this a family nose? Do you, who, who has that nose in your family? Mm. And sometimes like two days ago, the answer is my grandmother. Mm -hmm. And then I ask, so is she, a, do you like her? Do you like your grandmother? And when she says it was a female patient that said, She's the most wonderful person on this planet. I say, no, look, you carry a piece of the most wonderful person on this planet in your face. Oh, doctor, I never thought about it like that. That is a new, that is a new, new thought. And I said, well, then why not reflect on if we basically improve the shape of your nose, but we respect yes. the love of your grandmother and, and the, and the specific shape you have. Um, doing so, um, I very often, more often than not, uh, come to an understanding with a patient that it will do less to the nose than would be generally mm -hmm. accepted. Many walk on and say, oh, I thought you would, you would just tell me that everything has to be redone because I went to see another doctor and he said, we need to do this and this and this. And I said, no, we came to an agreement that this is the nose you like as we did the simulation on the screen. Mm -hmm. And very often that is less than uh, what the patient thought. And very often, much less than I thought the patient mm. would be requesting. So, bluntly, I probably quite often undercorrect issues. Mm. Um, now, that makes it very difficult to show these patients at conferences because then the question is, what did you do? Could you, could you do a better job? You could have fixed this nose, couldn't you? And then I say, no, this was specifically the agreement with the patient. Yeah. A lot of them end up under local anesthesia in a 15 or 20-minute procedure just correcting a small issue they have and I tell them, if they're not happy, they can come back. We can do more than that. But most of them, they stay happy because they, they understand and they incorporate the, the, the concept that, uh, that was the basis for the, uh, for the informed consent. So when you're seeing a patient for the first time, how much time are you spending on the history and the examination and the special examinations, testing the airflow, et cetera, like that? On, on average, how much time are you doing? surgery with the patient. Well, I have I have the luxury of having half an hour for first consultations. Uh, most most of the patients uh, are referred to me by ENT specialists or um, by plastic surgeons if it comes to noses. So the first consultation is half an hour. Most of the time, that's just right. That's just yeah. right. Um, I don't do I don't do airway testing as a routine. Why? because uh, it's not reproducible. I mean, the, the, the validity of these measurements, be it acoustic rhinometry or rhinomanometry or even, uh, or even numeric simulation, airflow simulation, uh, they are not reproducible. They do not correlate well with the complaints of the patient. 
Um, so I think they are overestimated in their role. I don't, I don't uh, base my indication on rhinomanometry. I used to for decades, but I don't do that any longer because the, the, the return on investment for a acoustic rhinometry or a rhinomanometry in my eyes is not sufficient. Mm. I see, I do the endoscopy, I talk to the patient, and by doing so, I learn if this is the breathing issue, if they have one, is more one of let's say a septal deviation, a one-sided, a fixed one-sided issue, or if it's if it's bilateral and changing, then it's probably more a mucosal issue, and then I treat the mucosa first. So um, I have a large number of patients who primarily come for breathing issues, and I'm very prudent to really sort that out. What I don't overlook and try not to overlook is the issue of anxiety and hyperventilation, which mm -hmm. is present in quite a significant number of our patients. Um, and the typical question to elucidate that is uh, is pointing to the throat and asking if your nose uh, becomes obstructed. Do you sometimes have a, a, a tight throat mm. too and maybe a tight chest? And if the next question, if it makes them nervous, is also answered with yes, then we're on a track. Then I give them a questionnaire uh, which uh, looks at generalized anxiety and hyperventilation. So I really sort those out. And if, they, if that's a candidate where I find an, uh, a a clue indicating hyperventilation or, or um, anxiety, uh, that's something I talk to them about before I even yeah. consider talking about surgery. And um, it, with your uh, background as rhinology as well, I mean, Prof. Stamberger had such an influence around the world and even in South Africa. In terms of cone beam CT scans of the nose and paranasal sinuses, how much do you incorporate that into your practice? I, well, the CT scan for me is not necessarily diagnostic first. It is more a planning or a guide or a roadmap for surgery if I plan in a nasal sinus surgeon. Um, typically, the, the complaints of the patients, patient history in combination with a thorough endoscopy of the middle meatus is for me most of the time sufficient. Now, when in doubt, for instance, a recurrent ventilation issue of the frontal sinus, barrel phenomenon, um, the pain with increasing pressure landing in the airplane, for instance, then I do, uh, I want a CT or a cone beam, both are good, to look at the nasal frontal duct if there's an obstruction there. And if the history is typical, that will be a candidate for me to open the frontal sinus. Um, otherwise, if we liberally use CT and X-ray, what we will find is mucosal swelling, um, uh, cysts in the recess of the maxillary sinus, uh, opacification of single ethmoidal cells without any clinical relevance. Yeah. So I, I always uh, compare the CT finding if patients come in with a CT or if I, if I decide to, uh, to make one or have one with the complaints of the patient and the endoscopic findings. Now for the typical rhinoplasty, I know there's a lot of colleagues out there who insist on having a common beam CT before they plan their surgery. Um, I don't. I just don't because I say I see what, I'm, what the cartilage issue is and what the bone issue is. Um, either beforehand or during the procedure, and I, I, I don't, I, I don't gain any any additional value from from a combing CT. Um, okay, so now if we look at it, so you've seen the patient, you spent half an hour, you might have ended up doing CT, really necessary. Most of the patients have been referred. What percentage of patients who actually end up walking across 
the door to your consulting rooms, you end up actually operating? At the most, uh, four out of five, probably. It depends. If, if, we, if, we, if we are speaking about the rhinoplasty, so not pure functional surgery, uh, as I said, many patients are referred to me. It's, some is word of mouth, but a lot of them are referred uh, from other corners of the country, um, and a large percentage of what I do is, is a revision. So in those cases, it's almost 100% that I oh. end up doing something, um, very often something minor, rasping down an irregularity, adding a little bit of volume here, rotating the tip a little more, um, making the patients understand that the initial idea of a beautiful nose is probably not something worth striving for or, or, or chasing uh, because we may end up causing more issues uh, than, than before. So I have to talk to them and, and get them to have realistic expectations. Um, again, my, my, my practice is a little bit distorted by, by or, or skewed by uh, the, the reference patterns of the, of the patients. Uh, a lot of them come to see me for, because they know that we have a specific uh, approach. We, it, it's present. Uh, we had a campaign here within Switzerland where we advocated the, the, our approach to rhinoplasty. A lot of patients appreciate that and say, uh, I, I like the concept of not having a scar, but that's not the point. I like the, the concept of not having my nose being taken apart and then being reassembled if, if that can be avoided. So, um, I, I'd say probably four out of five uh, wow. end up being operated. Um, and uh, for func purely functional problems, it's a lot less. It's a yeah. lot less. So I'm, I've learned to be a lot more restrictive with using the knife um, and doing more of history and medical therapy uh, in in cool. Okay, so I've got two more on the topics I want to chat about. The one is the future of rhinoplasty, and the second one is Obelian's funniest moment in theatre. So perhaps whilst you think about the funny moment, if you were to um, look to where rhinoplasty is going in the next decade or two. Where do you think um, we're going to be? Um, that's an interesting question. I, I could very well imagine that the pendulum will swing back from um, very elaborate long cases to maybe patient-centered and problem-specific um, smaller approaches. So maybe um, what some would call an undercorrection or a partial correction of, of an issue could become socially acceptable. Um, I was in Versailles a couple of years ago at the, uh, at the Rhinoplasty Society Europe conference, um, very impressive events. Uh, the lecture hall was packed, um, world-class lectures. It was very, very good. And people were, were, no one left the lecture hall because it was so good, but there were talks um, and presentations on, let's say, ailer rim grafting um, with 10 or 15 minutes talk on ailer rim grafting with very minimal, if any, difference to be seen from the pictures. And I wondered if this will change over time and patients or, or surgeons may come back to the point of thinking, well, you know, what's, What's the point in doing this or that if it doesn't really change much? And number two, um, a lot of these elaborate steps are performed in order to prevent complications or mm. bad outcome. Let's say mid-volt collapse or ailer retraction or 
um, uh, recurrent mm -hmm. deviation or visible irregularities under the dorsal skin, etc. Um, and that is true, but I think that's a consequence too of basically making it a big procedure. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, if I don't resect the alar cartilage, if I do no or very, very, very limited cephalic trimming, um, the alar mart is probably not mm -hmm. going to retract. Um, if I leave the dorsum intact by either lowering it as it is, or maybe even using a rasp, talking to the patient and saying, you know, if I if I rasp this, I will leave the integrity of your dorsum anatomically intact. Um, there may be a little residual hump. Yes, would you be happy to have that? And uh, some, some a lot of the patients say yes. So I could imagine that, let's say, maybe five or ten or fifteen years, the pendulum will have swung back to honoring time-tested, simpler procedures. And I could imagine that the public at large will will appreciate um, avoiding a surgical yeah. look. And that's what I see happen here. I do simulations on all patients. I change the shape, no matter what I do. Always do simulations. And I always, if the patients ask for it, do an over-correction on the screen. I say, this, is, this would be textbook. Is that still mm -hmm. you? And they say, doctor, I, I don't know. And then I say, you know, if you, if, you, if you sit in a cafe with a nose like this, someone has the slightest idea about rhinoplasty, will see your profile and will think, okay, that's a done nose. And then they say, oh, no, well, that's not what I like. Then I say the alternative is uh, respecting the shape you have now, improving it, making it nicer, but keeping mm -hmm. it natural. Um, that will not change your, your, your character or the way you look, and people will not think that you have had no surgery. And, and surprisingly large percentage of, of, uh, of my patients or candidates say, yes, that's, that's a concept I like. Not to speak, not to speak of the grandmother yeah, example yeah. I just mentioned, uh, of, of, of the deformity being uh, having a, a, a positive connotation yeah. because being ethnically or, or, or familial. Uh, mm. Jeez. Obviously, you've been giving all these pearls of wisdom that have been coming down. Um, end it off with us. I want to hear a funny story of what happens in the sometimes perceived the serious Switzerland. Um, doesn't have to be about rhinoplasty. Well, <laughs> that's a. I would. You should have given me that clue before because. Um, it's it's always charming. It's always pleasant in the operating theater, and and uh, and well, you know, it's it's typically a very very amicable and, and pleasant atmosphere. Um, I I'm not sure if something should be very funny. The things we talk about, the stories we tell each other, uh, are are funny. Um, I must say that um, I've seen many interesting things happen in the operating theater. I've seen many interesting and, and challenging and fascinating deformities. Um, I, I couldn't call it funny though. So if you, if you, if you ask me for, uh, for a funny story from the operating theater, uh, there's a lot of small little funny things, but the story, I think I have to. I have okay. To <laughs> wow. Well, thanks, man. That brings us to the end of, uh, another episode of the rhinoplasty podcast. And, um, on behalf of all the listeners around the world, people who are watching on YouTube or downloading on various podcast streams, uh, Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day. And uh, thank you for what you're doing for, for endonasal rhinoplasty and just rhinoplasty education. I, I think often um, you guys don't realize what you've done with setting up the fellowships and the work you've done. So from my side, I just want to say thank you. 
And on behalf of all our listeners and to the listeners, please come back again next week as we carry on this month of April where we're learning all about endonasal rhinoplasty. Thanks, Cameron. Thanks. It was a pleasure.